So the big question is this, how do investors like us who don't have a PhD in finance earn millions to start investing? How do we grow our bank accounts to build real savings and retirements and yet still have the time to do what we really love? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answer. Hey guys, John Bolton here with the Stock Market Secrets Podcast. So, so excited to talk to you today about something that I just talked about uh, with my sociology professor. It's really, really interesting. So in class, we were talking um, about overproduction of agriculture around the 1929 stock market crash and then the subsequent Great Depression. And what was really interesting was these guys in California, they were making so much food. Um, and it happened really because at the beginning there was a very slight, slight increase in, uh, or a slight decrease in the price of commodities. So corn, wheat, cotton, what these guys were growing to feed their families had a very slight, you know, decrease in value in the commodities market, uh, which is reasonable. So what happened was they decided, okay, well, to make the same amount of money as I was making, I'm going to have to go and uh, just uh, grow a little bit more. So they went out and they decided to grow more so that they could, you know, have the same level of income. So it increased the supply and a relatively stagnant demand. Um, you know, prices drop. It's just how just how basic economics work. So as the prices drop, they had to continue to grow more and more to have that same income level. And eventually what happens is they just kept growing so ridiculously much. They produced, they overproduced uh, so, so, so much that they were, you know, out of uh, a market for their goods. And then essentially these guys actually were, you know, literally dumping vegetables in the ocean they were putting them on ships they were loading up these huge cargo ships with vegetables and they would just dump them in the ocean because it wasn't profitable to sell them uh same thing with oranges in the same place right they had piles and piles and piles of oranges but it didn't make economic sense to to sell them it just wasn't very profitable because everyone was like broke and it just sucked the market was terrible the great depression obviously a terrible terrible time um, so they would take giant piles of oranges and, and douse them in kerosene and set them on fire uh, rather than distribute them in hopes that it would, you know, increase prices and eventually make farming profitable again so that these guys could actually, like, have a job. It was really, really crazy, and it brought into question what the right thing to do was, especially considering, you know, people were starving at the time. So it was it was a serious, serious issue. Um, it was really crazy. So, he, you know, we go and talk about that. And he continues to break down the uh, idea of overproduction as one of the you know, worst things that can happen in a capitalist economy. Uh, because overproduction of goods, messed up prices, messed up jobs, it just screws over a whole lot of people because there's just too much uh, supply and not enough demand. And then the curve, like the whole economy, I think about like the supply demand curve. I know not everyone's taking economics, so I'll, hey, thanks, man. I'll put it, you know, as simply as I can, right? You have a set. Uh, supply of uh, demand. You set demand. You know, the demand is like a line, and then you have uh, a set supply. Supply is like uh, another line. And as the two lines come together, what's really interesting. Oh, whoops. Uh, as the two lines come together, right, you start to see, you know, where they meet is where the production should be, and that's, you know, the equilibrium point on the supply and demand curve. Uh, makes sense. It's just, you know, how the uh, economics work with that. So, because there was so, 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 so much 
uh, supply and not you know say pretty much the same level of demand, there was a little gap, and that gap was really the um, profitability gap, right? So they were producing a lot more than was needed, and because of that, it just kind of left. It was left unsold, and it was a serious, serious problem. Uh, and it just led to you know prices going down because supply was so high, uh, and also you know people were losing their jobs. People just weren't able to make it because uh, they weren't able to profitably farm and sell their stuff. So it was a serious problem, and uh, and the economy just you know it just has to shift back, right? It just has to temporarily this temporary decrease in supply or an increase in demand. In this case, there was no increase in demand, so they had to decrease supply. And then the government artificially did that in the commodities market specifically by passing, you know, the agricultural laws that essentially, you know, paid farmers not to farm. And that artificially inflated the price of crops. And then, you know, they had government buyouts where they would guarantee prices up until like 1996. They would be paid not to farm. They'd be paid to destroy crops. And then they would also be paid a guaranteed price for their crops, even if the market wouldn't support that price. Uh, which was really, really interesting. It showed government intervention in a time of crisis. I mean, it was it's really, really cool stuff. Definitely a really interesting time period, especially if you look at other regulations that came out of it, like, you know, uh, like FDIC and then SEC, all those all those financial laws. It's really cool, cool stuff. But the point of it is the overproduction is what screwed everyone over um, at, at a fundamental, at a fundamental level. So, thinking about that, and I'm like, okay, okay. And then I started to realize, like, I'm thinking about how you can buy some financial markets, how you can buy some stock market, especially in overarching markets, right? So with uh, data like this and examples like this, we're looking at, like, the overarching, you know, the entire economy. Um, so when you look at change in the entire economy, you also look at index funds, right? You look at indices, which represent market sentiment for, you know, literally everyone because they just have to have, you know, that's just, it's the whole collection of stocks. It's the entire economy. When you have, you know, the SP 500, 500 stocks, 500 companies represents, I think, like 90 something percent. I swear it's in the book. Um, percentage of the uh, economy represented in in one index. So if the price goes up, the economy goes up. Price goes down, economy goes down. So there was this huge, huge crash, full, full economic, you know, collapse, and everything sucked. Um, so if you look at financial markets, you think, okay, well, where can you, you know, besides that example with the Great Depression, how else can you apply? Um, overproduction of anything into uh, in the stock market. And then I was thinking about, you know, the 1999, 2000, 2001, the dot-com bubble and then the, the dot-com burst, right? Where the stocks, you know, they, they went down and freaking like 70, 80%. It was crazy. It's crazy. These companies, and I, I, you know, you see it in the book, you look at any index ever, um, and you'll see this, right? There was these massive, massive run-up in the price of securities. Uh, but then what happened was the uh, it just wasn't sustainable, and there was a huge, huge, really quick boom, and then a huge, huge, really quick bust. And um, people, you know, they lost their shit because people uh, they buy in with emotions. They just buy a bunch of at the top. And it was a very tough situation for anybody, but a lot of people, you know, especially newer investors. I know a ton, a ton of people. The first time they ever heard about the stock market was in the dot com bubble. Was during you know one of the the biggest you know financial crashes uh, ever, and that was how they learned about the stock market. And they tried to invest at the top because there was all this hype and all this uh, you know speculation, and everyone's saying, "Oh, stocks are going to go up and up and up and up." Kind of like 
the uh, cryptocurrency crash of 2017. Same thing happened there. Everyone said it was the best, amazing, just the crazy, crazy cool thing ever. And uh, and then it just it just kind of collapsed after that. It uh, tanked, right? So, um, and that's just the overarching um, market sector. That's overarching market run. Obviously, stocks mimic that pattern, but you could pretty much time stocks once you learn technical analysis. Um, which is all part two of the book. Like, if you get technical analysis, you can time stocks so ridiculously easily. Um, so that's why if you were trading back then, there were insane, insane swing trading profits to be made uh, with just, you know, general stocks, some tech stocks, some other stocks, um, but like any sector of stocks, you could find really, really, really good setups. Um, and that's what's cool about market crashes and, and huge, huge run-ups. It's not necessarily good for your overarching long-term portfolio, especially if you're in index funds. Uh, but if you're in index funds, especially, you know, in an overarching long-term portfolio, you're essentially only investing in the long-term. And the point with it is to leave that money in there for decades and decades. Um, and then once you get closer to retirement or a savings goal, that's when you would start to scale out. That's when you would start to invest in safer assets like bonds or um, other other alternative investments, which is super, super cool. Um, but the point with it is that you don't start there and... Uh, and we'll start, you know, mostly with, with these really So use, uh, so for, for, for short-term investing, right, for swing trading, specifically with, like, medium-term asset investment where, you know, you're in it, you're not, like, in it forever, but you might be in it for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. That's when, when there's significant, and it's shown, too, with, with the VIX, the VIX, uh, the CBOE volatility index, that shows the overarching volatility of the S&P 500, you're going to see insanely high volatility in market crashes, right? 2008 crash. Whoa, 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 whoa. The 2008 crash. Oh, 2008 crash. Um, 1999 bubble, the burst, everything there. And then also, if you look it up, there's tons and tons and tons of periods. All it does is measure the volatility of the S&P 500. And as that volatility goes up, um, the index obviously will be a little bit sketchy. It'll be a little scarier. Um, in the long term, it doesn't matter, right? You just don't worry about it. You understand that it's long-term investment. For, for swing trading, it's insanely, insanely powerful. Um, not necessarily for 9 to noon trading. 9 to noon trading is pretty much, it, 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 it's about the same all the time. It's pretty much always amazing. Um, you know, in, like on a consistent basis, you have to trade consistently and you have to be there consistently. But if you're doing your work consistently with 9 to noon trades, it's pretty much always just an amazing market to be in. And it just swings, you know, month to month, you might have better movers where other months might have worse movers. Um, it just it just depends on the uh, the month. Um, but that's really not as affected as much by markets. Although, in the, you know, fair fair statement, if the market goes down one day, so a lot of times nine to noon trades might not be as, as good. It just depends. It just it just depends. Um, so anyway, swing trading is where you're going to see the biggest biggest impact from this uh, certain field of overarching market analysis with macroeconomic principles. Uh, because what happens is now instead of just normal volatility, you can expect higher rates of, you know, extremely high volatility, right? Based on, you know, this, the VIX or also just how the market feels like it's more volatile. Well, what's that mean for you? It means that if you make a swing trade, maybe something based on options, maybe something based on just traditional buy, sell calls or, um, yeah, just buy and sell. Um, and then once you get good options, I don't know. I'm in options a lot right now just because I'm in a really, really nice place with my education. And I know, you know, what I'm doing so that I'm not going to lose a whole bunch of cash if I, um, you know, I diversify well and I just make it work, which is cool. really, really powerful. Um, but in addition to that, 
Um, this is a focus between something like fine, special, medium, superstition. With the volatility of the goes up, all of a sudden those two trading positions become two times, three times more profitable. They're ridiculous. They're awesome, awesome positions to be in. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you can, uh, you can, you know, place your bets with technical analysis and understand what you're doing. And once you do that, thank you. Um, what happens is really, really, really powerful. Jilla companies that swing 60% in a year. And like, that's insanely powerful for a swing trade. If you have that in balance, like 5 to 7% of your portfolio, you've got a couple times with some really nice stocks. I mean, you're beating market returns ridiculously well. And, you know, the average time investment on a swing trade is usually just a couple of hours. So it's a very, very high return on your on your time invested. And you don't have to read, like, usually, you know, annual reports. Like, those are more, like, longer-term things to read. Uh, but sometimes you might, sometimes, just depends on how much you understand the underlying market sector. I know right now I'm reading Neo, uh, the car company from China. Uh, they're really, really cool guys. So I'm reading their report right now to see if I want to make uh, a swing trade with them for the next six to eight months, which is really, really cool so that I can understand that, like, hey, these guys are acting kind of profitable, which is sweet. Right now, they just launched their new uh, the new car six months ago, and they, did, they just brought out the SE8, and then I think they did the SE6 uh, actually just a couple weeks ago, which is really, really cool. Um, they've been blowing money for a long time, and now they're actually making money. They're producing cars, um, which is awesome. It's really, really cool. Um, to see how they're doing there and how they're, it's, it's cool. I'm, I'm in the middle of reading it, so I'll keep you guys posted on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. Uh, but thanks. Um, so with that, right, with, with increased market volatility, that increased uh, marketplace volatility means that you can have really, really nice swing trades and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're investing a lot less in the uh, time invested. And then you can usually do a, a solid job working through the, uh, you know, the, thanks. Oof, working through the returns, because it's, uh, it's, it's cool, cool, cool. You can balance it really easily. And especially if you're just getting into trading, it's a great way to get better at your technical analysis and your skills. Because uh, with medium term trades, you know, you're not gonna lose 10% of a position if you exit it five minutes late, which can happen almost instantaneously with nine to noon stocks. Um, so there's more volatility, but the volatility is, you know, it's spread out over a couple of weeks, a couple of months. It's a lot harder to lose your entire portfolio in like two days, uh, which uh, you can definitely do. You don't set stop loss. It's, it just depends. It just depends. Um, that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty aggressive example, but it's one that a lot of people need to understand. I lost, um, you know, when I was learning and you mean you lose entire positions, like that happens if you don't have proper discipline, you don't have proper education. Specifically, I started with proper education because I didn't have anywhere to get it. Um, which sucks. Now you have it, which is awesome. I'm so excited to share with you. Um, but but on a better, you know, overarching level, like it's uh, it's more volatile, just quicker, right? So anyway, with increased volatility, you have better swing trades. It's just a, a whole whole better trading environment. So uh, back to these financial crises, right? Um, what happened with you know in 1999 uh, was really interesting. There were like tons and tons and tons and tons of tech companies going public. I mean like more companies whoa 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 than normal more companies than almost like the entire past you know period of time it was just a ridiculously huge amount of uh, tech companies going uh, going public so because of that there was what i was thinking this is what i told my teacher he didn't really know 
exactly what to say, but he sort of understood, you know, what I was getting at. The point with it was there were, you know, all these tech companies going public. And by going public, they have like an IPO and they, re they were private before that. And then once they go public, they get listed on stock exchanges and, uh, you know, they're in the secondary market. Now, the shares that they issued in the primary market, which would be like initial funding or just the original owners of the company having shares in the company, um, those shares are now traded on, on public exchanges. So they are now essentially stocks. Um, and once they become a stock, then you can invest in them without going through, you know, actually saying, hey, can I invest in your company? Like, all you do, log in your broker. Sometimes they have uh, direct share purchase plans, just log in. And, uh, and push a buy. And anyway, so that's that's company going public. So once they go public, um, they're a new stock, right? So there were tons and tons and tons of new stocks coming out right before the crash in like the 1990, late, late 1990s. Um, and people, oh my God, it was insane. Like people were paying for dinners in uh, in Silicon Valley with shares of their company, uh, which were just ridiculously overinflated. And it was, it was a really, really, really crazy, crazy time. Um, and it obviously didn't last very long because there was a massive crash afterwards, which sucked for so many people. Um, but but anyway, so all these new companies going public, new stocks everywhere. And what's that mean for investors? Well, it means there's you know a lot of new companies to consider investing in. Um, and prices were high, right? Microsoft. Well, they were probably three, or not no, LinkedIn. Uh, they're different, but anyway, yeah, they go public. You know, you have companies like Red Hat that are going up. I know, I know one guy, he was trading Red Hat like at the peak of the bubble. And he's one of those people where he got in on the bubble. It was the first time he heard about stocks. And his friends, you know, they were pressuring him to buy stocks, kind of like people were doing in the recent cryptocurrency crash, right? Like everyone was getting pressured to like buy, you know, crypto, Bitcoin, whatever. Um, because, you know, these, these, these assets were, I mean, doubling in, in, you know, the matter of sometimes weeks, sometimes months. But like, it was just a ridiculous rate of return. So it uh, attracted a lot of people that just were in it for the, the short term and uh, thought they were going to be just these, you know, ridiculous get rich quick things, uh, which which was, uh, you know, obviously that's not the point of the market. Um, it's it's work and it's growth and long term. It's, it's cool, 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 cool stuff. Um, so a lot of people come in and um, and and he was she was trading him. Right. So he uh, he traded Red Hat. He got in and then they like doubled and then. It was really, really interesting. This one guy, right? Because he was new into stocks. He was new into assets. He like didn't open his account for like four months. Hey, thanks guys. And because he didn't open his account, like he had no idea what the value of it was. So um, they went up a whole bunch and then they started going down a whole bunch. And like he wasn't following the market. He didn't have an investor on his side. He didn't have friends really in the space. He didn't have uh, companies that were managing his money or even financial newsletters that were giving him an update. Uh, like, hey, this is what's happening in the stock market. Um, if you're swing trading, which is essentially what he was doing, although I, I guess he probably didn't realize it, uh, with a medium-term investment in a tech company. Um, not based on technicals, really. It was, it was just like a fundamental trade. But like at the same time, it was sort of more like he just kind of bought it because it was going up a lot, which is probably not a good reason. So I don't know. It was, it was a really, really interesting time. There was a lot of new people getting into the stock market. And a lot of people, they got burned because that mentality, you know, he lost, uh, he lost it, right? And it sucks because, you know, people have that as their first experience in financial markets. And people hear about all these stock market crashes all over the place. And, uh, and then they think, oh, the stock market's too risky. Oh, I shouldn't be investing or I'll lose all my money. Um, without realizing that 
if you take a step back and look at the long term, you know, the S&P 500 is the most conservative investment you can make. And, you know, in, in equities indices, and it goes up, you know, 9% on average per year. And the longer that you have money in the S&P, the uh, higher the chance that you're going to get that positive average 9% return, which goes about 7% after inflation. And then you can get into more aggressive indices that do significantly better. They outperform. You can get an individual assets that outperform. But at a fundamental basic level, you're looking at the long-term growth of an entire economy, which is ridiculously powerful because it just goes up. You look at the history, you know, it just goes up. Wages, you know, real wages can say the same. Real wages can change. Um, but with, with the stock market, you know, in the past 100 plus years, um, I don't know, uh, the NYSE, I think, came out. They like, actually started trading publicly in 1812. I mean, there's been crashes. There are always crashes. But in the long term, it, it just goes up. So anyway, that's something I talk about more in the book in like chapter 16 or 17 on index funds, uh, which is a really powerful, powerful concept and a really amazing way to start investing. Um, so originally how I started, I, I transferred out of it pretty quickly, though, because I just really like trading. So I went into swing trading quick, uh, which is all based on technical analysis, which is part two of the book. So hey, thanks, guys. Join it. We look at over right? There's a ton, ton of IPOs, ton of new companies. There is a massive, massive, you know, dare I say, influx or overproduction of these new companies. So I'm like, hey, look, there is this massive, quote, overproduction of financial assets. Right? Tons and tons of new options, new choices. Do you think that an overproduction in the financial market could lead to a crash, just like an overproduction in the agricultural market led to a crash? And um, and that was like pretty crazy stuff because he was like, I don't know, maybe. Um, but it kind of made sense because like, when you, you know, tons and tons of new stocks, just like there were tons and tons of new uh, plants, you know, leads to essentially too much in the marketplace, too much supply for the investor, too much supply for the people that were eating cabbage versus the demand of, you know, food or in financial markets, the demand of stocks, right? Um, because, you know, like not everybody in the whole wide world wants to buy stocks for some ridiculous reason. People don't understand that, like, if you just invest in assets, you can create ridiculous amounts of wealth. I mean, like the top 10%, top 1%, they're very, very wealthy. Essentially, you know, for the primary reason that the biggest thing they own are assets. And the stock market is like one of the most ridiculously easy ways to start investing in assets and growing your wealth. Um, by, you know, the click of a button. It's insane. It's really, really crazy, powerful stuff. And that's why, oh, I'm so ridiculously passionate about, you know, education and empowering, you know, the creation of real savings and retirement through financial markets. It's really, really, really cool stuff. Um, we'll see if we can make it up this hill today. I'm super excited for it. We've been, we've been working hard for this. It's uh, super cool. So as we talked about that, we started thinking about it. And I also was thinking about like the 08 crash, right? In the 08 crash, um, you know, there were tons and tons of mortgages. And so what banks would do is they would group up the mortgages and they would create, I'm sure if you guys watched um, The Big Short, The Big Short, really, really good movie about the 08 crash. Um, you know, they talked about how they had these, these very, very sketchy uh, ways to invest in, in, in home mortgages through, um, you know, a lot, a lot of technical terms, a lot of crazy, crazy cool stuff. What they would do is they would take them and they would take all the mortgages 
they were really good. They grouped them together. I'd take the ones that sucked, they were grouping together. And we'd take the ones that were just like total crap and group them together. And now, instead of just selling a mortgage, there were like these six other uh, ways. And I talked about this in the other episode, I think, but there were just tons and tons of different ways for people to invest in housing debt uh, for consumers, which was uh, a whole bunch of new, you know, increased supply of assets in that market. Um, and at the same time, it would probably increase demand on people wanting to buy mortgages. I mean, they're really, really good debt instruments, um, especially for diversification when you're nearing a savings or retirement goal because they are generally around bond-like returns since you're loaning out money, which is sort of like how bonds work pretty much, um, is loaning out money and then getting paid interest on it. And that's and, and houses specifically usually get a worse rate just because 30-year fixed-rate mortgages um, are, are pretty bad for, for interest rate returns. They're great for investing in real estate, um, but not for investing in, in, you know, money. So anyway, banks will do it because they can leverage their cash if they only have to, you know, if they have like a 7 to 8% reserve ratio, that means they can like multiply the amount of money they have by like a bajillion. And then I talked about this in the other episode, but essentially, um, you know, just loan out a boatload of cash they don't like necessarily have, but they're allowed to have because of federal regulations on centralized banking, which is seriously sketch. Um, so they're totally cool. You know, if they earn a 3% return on money that is leveraged 10x, like that's really, really good. That's basically, you know, a 30% return on, on a, an extremely minimal risk investment, um, especially given historic volatility in housing mortgages. So really, really, really cool stuff there. Anyway, back to the point of, you know, unleveraged stock returns. It, there was a ton, a ton of new products created in the market. So because of that, there was an increased supply of products. And then also with the underwriting that we talked about the other day, there was a ton of ton of that. And, um, and that was also, you know, another, another way people could invest, uh, another means to invest and essentially just an entire new aspect of the market. So there was all this supply that came out of nowhere. And, you know, I think it's a little bit, but I mean, obviously the entire market crashed, the housing market collapsed. And people were defaulting on homes left and right, uh, partially because they over leveraged themselves with debt. But on a, on a grander scale, there was a huge, huge increase in the supply of financial uh, financial assets, uh, specifically in the housing industry. And what they did was seriously, seriously mess up, um, you know, investor returns, which was pretty crazy. Thank you. Um, and that's why I was thinking, like in the 1999 crash. There were a ton of ton of IPOs, just like there were a ton of ton of um, ways to uh, new ways to invest in uh, mortgages in the 08 crash, and uh, and now you know same things happening. A ton of ton of IPOs, and you know it's it's never, you know it's, it's pretty much you know impossible to time a market unless you're really really good and have a lot of industry insight, which a lot of people do, which is awesome. I mean, you know it, you know it. That's so 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 cool. A lot of people predicted the 2000 com bubble. A lot of people predicted the 08 crash. Um, but, you know, at a fundamental level, the Fed chair, Paul Volcker, what was he? I forget who it was. I wrote about it in the book. Um, but he was probably, you know, one of the, you know, supposed to be the most informed guy on, on the economy. And, you know, he predicted it, you know, like three years early. So, like, and tons and tons of people. Like, everyone's going to say that there's this huge crash coming. Um, and in, But unless they, like, seriously know the underlying industry, it's, like, the only people that get media attention are the ones who are right. But the ones who are right, most of the time, we're just right by chance, rather, um, 
than underlying industry knowledge. And that's why um, The Big Short, like I said, is it's a good movie because uh, they, they talk about, you know, these guys that were on the inside and actually knew what was going on and were able to realize that, like, hey, uh, this is why the financial markets are super messed up right now and completely over And it was all based on fundamental analysis uh, just by doing market research, which is super, super important. Like, I know I did a YouTube video a little bit, a little while ago, uh, you know, I'm looking at shorting which has turned out to be a really, really nice position. Take your COKE after a W setup, which is really, really interesting. And I learned a whole lot about interior bull in Japan W setups from that and uh, how they can overpower head and shoulder setups, which is super cool. Actually seeing the same thing right now in uh, a company called, uh, I forget the company, it's like Ollie's, and the ticker is O-L-L-Y, or O-L-L-Y. I as in indigo, um, it's really, really cool to see it break through the second shoulder and then turn into an interior Bollinger Band W setup and then go up, you know, another 20%, 30%, super, super high uh, growth potential on those positions. It's really, really cool stuff. But anyway, we're almost done here. And I just want to circle back to the oversupply, the overproduction of assets in financial markets. It's essentially what you're looking at. Um, it's just this massive, massive influx of supply in the financial market. And what happens is when people have, when investors have all these options, um, and, you know, this could be wrong, but, like, it's, it's a pretty crazy coincidence, and it's something I think should be considered. Um, they had all these options to invest in. That was when the, the, uh, the economy flipped. That was when the market shifted. That's when everything started to crash, when there were so, so many options... Um, and there was so much supply, just like in the, you know, uh, farming business, right? When there's so much corn that people just can't consume it fast enough. If there are so many stocks that people just can't consume it fast enough based on, you know, saving and investing habits and the amount of money people spend on or see people save and invest in their futures, the financial futures. Once that equilibrium is passed, there have historically been extremely big reversals in overarching market trends. And, um, is something really, really powerful that I think everyone should think about, uh, especially as they consider overarching macroeconomic movements and uh, stock indices. So, hey, it's really cool stuff. Definitely a factor I'm going to consider, especially when I watch um, or when I when I follow, you know, like what's going on with the market. Um, really cool to consider. Like, are there more financial assets being created right now? And if there are, is that going to overwhelm the supply of investor capital? Because uh, more options, I mean, people only have the same amount of money most of the time, unless they're making a bunch of money, which is awesome. Um, but at a certain point, you can't just fuel growth with profits. Um, if people are going to take their profits, which they will, just like in the crypto crash of 2017, people take their profits. And, you know, all of a sudden, you're going to have that reverse because someone, you know, and especially once you get a whole group of people that say, hey, look, this is a lot of money. I made a lot of money. I'm, uh, I'm good. I'm going to get out. Once they get out, it can, it can cause, you know, like a chain effect. And then indicators reverse, uh, trend lines reverse, MACD reverses, all these technical indicators reverse. And then you have a whole, whole, whole new, um, new buying pressures. And it's super, super tough to predict the top. And uh, it's, it's just a, it's a really tough game to play, um, especially, you know, timing overarching indices. It's really not the easiest, it's just, it's just really, you know, not a thing to do, but really cool factor to consider. 
And a really great thing to think about if you're considering scaling into safer investments, if you're considering scaling into bonds, especially if you're near an overarching saving and retirement goal, is to consider um, the sentiment of the market. And one very, very cool specific factor to consider uh, is the overproduction of financial assets. So, hey, guys, hope you found this really, really valuable. Hope you have an amazing day. Go out there and crush it. All right, thanks. See ya. Want more stock market secrets? If so, go get your free copy of my best-selling book, 9 to Noon. You can get your free copy plus $11,176 of unannounced bonuses. It took me years to uncover completely for free at 9toNoonSecrets.com. Inside 9 to Noon, you'll find the top 38 secrets you can use to double your portfolio every two years and make upwards of 10% per trade daily.